welcome to season three of the Lifestyle Chase, and I'm your host, Chris Little. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. To help this podcast grow, please share it on social media, rate five stars, tell your friends, and check out the past 140 episodes and counting. You can follow me on Instagram at Christian Little and at The Lifestyle Chase. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. All right, so welcome to the Lifestyle Chase. I have brought back someone that was actually requested to be back on the show. One of my friends actually was like, you should get Andrew Coates on. And I was like, I've had Andrew Coates on. And so anybody who um, hasn't listened to that episode, it was actually recorded July 12th, 2019, um, episode 58. So today, this is episode 180 brought Andrew back. If you want his origin story, you can dig back to that other episode. We're just going to jump right into this because if anybody hates origin stories, it's my my good friend, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm good. And what good call on skipping the origin story. They uh, You end up getting on enough podcasts, you keep retelling them. So I'm here with Ozzy. He's decided he wants to struggle and get out of my arms now. So I'm going to put him down. There you go, buddy. And uh, things are great. Just got back to my home studio. I spend my evenings doing work here. And uh, daytimes at all still where you are, and uh, life's been got it's been a busy year. It's been a great career year. Uh, I cannot complain. For sure. I mean, it's it's been an interesting year for everybody. But the cool thing that I like to reflect on is just the amount of growth that came from it all. Like, I mean, I've been doing a deep dive on that book, "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday, which I honestly stumbled across that from you. And it's mentioned in the original episode that I referenced. And it was just like, that book is handy for anybody that's kind of feeling like the world is out to get them. It kind of gives you a shift of perspective to kind of see things through a new lens. Um, what we're going to do here is I'm, I'm kind of curious, what was life like for you when you first came across that book? Like kind of using that as a focal point. I happen to be working at um, my old gym I used to work at. And uh, there was an ongoing issue at the gym. Um, I will be very careful what I say, but let's just say that there were a lot of problems within the organizational culture. Um, I was witness to, you know, lots of sexual harassment, harassment, uh, predatory multi-level marketing recruitment, and malicious <clears throat> behavior towards anybody who stood up and, and fought against this sort of stuff. And of course, I had no tolerance for it. So I tended to be a disagreeable presence in the face of these problem behaviors, which guarded me back then with a reputation as being very difficult to work with. I'm proud of standing up for you know, people who are mistreated. And it got me fired back upon and harassed to the point where just some stuff was going down. And I realized at this juncture that I needed to leave this climate. This is a, um, you know, I, I hate, I find the word toxic so cliche, but toxic work environment so I went through the process of deciding, you know, if it was worth staying or going. I happened to be halfway through that book when, you know, a pivotal incident went down that kind of pushed me over the edge. And then, you know, a few months later, I just said, no, I'm out. Um, I went to Evolve, started contracting there, and it's been the best thing that could have ever possibly happened. I think sometimes we find books or we're reading things. I'll, I'll rephrase it this way. I think I love reading. 
I think a lot of the books you will read will help shape some of your fundamental attitudes uh, towards the world. But I also think you'll find a lot of things that align with, you know, attitudes that are already forming. And sometimes it's the book that puts it in a certain context that is more concise and makes sense to you. And I like Obstacles Away in particular because underlying, underpinning is the idea of personal responsibility and you choose your own attitude. I had an Instagram post today very much about that. And we live in a strange world where often the messages of personal empowerment or reminding people that they are responsible, they're the only personal person responsible for their own outcome, that message can be almost politically incorrect. And we have a lot of people who, out of it, intending to be kind, are robbing a lot of people of personal responsibility and power over changing their own outcome and their own lifestyle. You know, we exist in a fitness industry that should, uh, you know, it, it fails in this at times, but should be there to help people um, be healthier, right? And part of being healthier, and I make no bones about making this statement, uh, you know, we have a society that has a very, very high rate of obesity. And despite some crackpot lunacy that tries to peddle the notion that there is no relationship between obesity and health, nothing could be further from the truth. I work with a cardiologist who's very, very clear on this fact. And we also know that people who are, quote, obese, and some people even have a problem with the term obese. Well, you know what? It is a way of understanding a concept, okay? So, uh, you know, if everything is offensive to you, maybe your attitude is a problem. And, and I'll put that straight up out there. If everything about the world you find offensive and you're subject to ideas that, that upset you and you want to make them go away, I think you're the extremist and I think you are the problem. So with obesity, you can be technically and categorically obese and still be very healthy. The way to do that is through being active, resistance training, right? I work with people who fit that technical category if you want to use that, that classification system. And again, there's a major flaws with categorizing individuals within that system. It's a good system for looking at demographics. We'll, we'll leave it at that. But yes, you can be incredibly healthy while being there. But in the grand scheme of things, as a society, if we have an inactive society that is overweight, then we are going to have more long-term health, poor health outcomes, heart disease, you know, uh, lifestyle cancers, diabetes, especially. And well, shit, we saw what happened this year where the prevalence of, you know, all of this stuff dramatically increase the the severe outcomes of you know, the shitty disease that got loose for the last year and a half. Definitely. I mean, something that kind of really stood out to me about this past while, and I think something that we can both relate to is not only are the benefits of gyms like for our physical health, but also for our mental health and not in like a cliche way, but just the sense of like finding people who you're familiar with and like Sometimes, I mean, for myself, I'm not always just chatting away in the gym. Sometimes it's just seeing people's faces, seeing them putting in the work is like, uh, it's helpful. I mean, you have your home studio, you don't necessarily have to be out and about, but you still like, I saw you recently got a, a new membership for a gym and it's like, what are the benefits for you? Like aside from like business and all that stuff, but just for your own emotional well-being in being in a gym environment for you. I enjoy gyms. I enjoy commercial gyms. And um, I liked working out in the gym that I ultimately ended up working at. I was a member first and became um, a trainer there. 
but given the you know the breaking off of that relationship that wasn't a company i would ever give financial support to ever again so i joined good life and i really liked some of the good lives around town for a while but during this last year and a half i found good life's way of dealing with it and rules to be intolerable so you know i've left my membership on pause there i'll go back eventually i joined up at la a good friend of mine's a gm of the south la and I find I don't like the LA very much. It's it's simple things like having your benches diagonal from you know walls. The walls are diagonal. You're looking up, you're benching, and the the roof is not straight in line with the bench. It is actually really disruptive. Or the fact that the building has very poor air conditioning, right? So things like that. But I still like commercial gym atmosphere. So what do I do? I love Evolve. You know, Evolve is you know is a strength training facility and and really incredible. But it's also my workplace too, so I like to go in there sometimes. But I long ago learned that I don't want to spend, you know, eleven hours working and then another hour and a half working out in the same building. I've, I've been there, I've done that, and it limits the number of people you're exposed to. So I'm an outgoing, gregarious personality, and I like going to different locations. So we have a new gym franchise, Movadi, opened up in Windermere. No gym company has ever done, gotten a foothold in that corner of the city probably expensive uh, floor space. They've got a good management team, some people that I know from years past. They're, they're going to be well run. And I went and checked it out and I said, shit, you know what? This will be a nice place. They've got good hours, beautiful, beautiful facilities. And so it will complement my time that I spend out of convenience in my home gym, which is well-equipped, the time that I will work out at Evolve, you know, probably good life, who knows, maybe even LA sometimes. So it's nice to have the options, but I really do enjoy the idea of you know, running into people I haven't seen in a while. A good friend of mine, I think you probably know who Jeff Hecht is, you know, former CFL player, technically current, uh, you know, came into Evolve today. Got, you know, he's a very close friend. So I got to spend 10 minutes talking with him before he worked out and before I, I got to work. But in any one environment, you're still fairly limited by the same people all the time. And it's nice to have a variety of possible people to run into. And given the nature of the last year and a half, we've been severely limited in those random encounters that we would, might otherwise have being out in the world. Absolutely. Like I couldn't agree more. I, I miss those random encounters, just actually being able to bump into somebody that you know and have it not be planned and actually enjoy getting to see them after a long absence. Like it had probably been a while since you had seen Jeff in person. So I, I can imagine that must've been pretty nice. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's a close friend. He is, has, he is someone who I, you know, say has a standing invitation to any private, um, you know, barbecues or anything that I would have. And I haven't been able to do anything like that outside of my closest, closest bubble of friends this past year. So it'll be nice to start doing that stuff again. So when it came to like this past period of time, I, I don't like to focus too, too much on this whole thing that we just went through. But like, uh, when it came to like, social connection, um, what did you learn that you valued the most with social connection outside of just professional stuff? Like, was it uh, being able to talk to people, being able to check in with people, finding more time to go for walks, or or what kind of stood out for you? I don't know if there's any grand revelations, but I definitely felt the absence of you know my close friends and not seeing them as much. I managed to get fairly regular time with my absolutely closest, closest people. But that group that you, you know, consider fairly close, uh, just weren't 
accessible this year. Well, then again, three of my best pals all had, you know, their first kid this year, including Dean Guido, right, who you've uh, had on the podcast before and my former co-host as well. So Dean's had his little kid now. So that's a factor for sure. But yeah, I re- I think if anything, you just take for granted just the, the normal everyday freedom and ability to do all the things that we were forbidden from doing in this past year and a half. So, and, and that includes the ability to go to the gym. I mean, it, would I ever have imagined it would be illegal to go to the gym, you know, by, by government mandate? I, I never would have believed it if anyone tried to tell me it. I mean, the concept is completely ludicrous. So the fact that that actually occurred, what I hope will happen is a lot of people who maybe were inconsistent, inter- intermittent, have always wanted to and tried, will look at this and go, remember how it felt when you were told you couldn't. Remember how it felt when you wanted to make that effort. So don't take it for granted now that those options are back there. And of course, there's always going to be the, and I'm going to say idiots, who say things like, oh, you don't need a gym to work out. I find that to be one of the most insensitive and thoughtless pieces of garbage that gets peddled around. And I've seen it from people in our industry. Anyone who works in our industry understands how challenging it is to get started on the habit of working out. A lot of people struggle with it. We see it every New Year's. A lot of people go in, they struggle, they don't stick around. If you think it is as easy as snapping your fingers to transfer one style of active habit and lifestyle into others, you're thoughtless, you know, you're completely missing the point. And I found that that particular sentiment to be, I, I just kind of disgusted by it. And I, I know I'm emphasizing strong feelings about it here, but to just turn around and say, oh, you know, you can just go do this outside. You, Someone has learned, took a really, really long time and found a challenging route to learning a skill that has worked for them. And you're just in this cavalier way saying, oh, you don't need that. You can go do something else. Where on earth did that attitude come from in our industry, right? Yeah, I mean, it's rough because for myself, like the thing, the draw for me into the industry was connection with people and then finding like meaning in in a facility. And it started off with spin and then it turned into training. And I felt a great sense of purpose in helping other people. And how did I help other people? I had access to all these tools. And it's it's a lot different to go into a gym and show people how they can like move some significant weight versus going out to the park and just having them do endless reverse lunges. Like, I mean, it's uh, you have to be in it to really empathize with a person that uh, lost something very significant significant to them for for a big portion of the year, kind of thing. Okay. And then you get the straw man argument where you know someone turns around and if you advocate that gym should be open. And you want to kill grandma. Now, guess what? That's a ridiculous se- sentiment, but yet we've seen lots of it on social media. Again, social media is, brings out kind of the nastiest in people and you forget there's another human on the other end of it and someone just takes their extreme ideological belief system and their tribal belief system and just attacks anybody who's saying something that you know conflicts with you know the way that you see the world. And, and that's a frustration. I try not to engage in that kind of stuff. I don't participate in those kind of conversations. Um, I would love to see more nuance in these kind of conversations and more honesty when someone who is, how many people do we know saw their mental health suffer this year? How many people do we know 
we're really thrown off track with their their physical well-being, right? And, and God only knows what else is going on in their lives. And then to have someone come in and basically dance on the grave of your ability to go to the gym, who doesn't even value it in the first place, you know, what gives you the right to tell someone else how they can live your life, right? And I just don't understand that. I, I find that comes from a really intolerant place. So. Well, I mean, it's rough and social media can get to be a very dark place. And I find it to be like very uh, helpful to take time when it's just like, okay, like we're, we're just going to stay off social media altogether for like a day, for a week, for a chunk of hours. Like, have you ever found yourself having to do that? And uh, how did that help? Or did you not do it ever yet? Kind of thing. I think it's a really important thing to develop good boundaries with, with social media. Um, I wrote something recently about being intentional with it. You know, use, use it for what you're trying to get out of it. Don't let it use you. It's designed and engineered to keep you scrolling and keep you addicted. And if you find yourself mindlessly scrolling a lot, well, there's the obvious productivity issues. And there's a whole bunch of neurotransmitter science behind all that. And that, that stuff's not necessarily good for you. But if you find yourself scrolling mindlessly, try to catch yourself quickly, right? And recognize the behavior. And there's a number of strategies I think are worthwhile. You said it yourself, being able to turn it off and take a break from it, I think is a good idea. I think a lot of us are more addicted to social media than we realize. So, but there are other tactics. And one that I am merciless with is, is muting or unfollowing anything that I find. And it's not about burying yourself in an echo chamber. I think that's a it's a, a different kind of problematic attitude. You know, people who are just, again, living one ideological tribe about anything, whether it's politics or social sciences or nutrition or training modalities, you know, you can't do that to yourself. But when you follow people who peddle and deal in enragement, which many people do in social media algorithms, they push that sort of stuff because they know it's what gets people caught up. If something makes you feel fearful or anxious or angry, then question, ask yourself, why am I following the person who peddles in this stuff? And it's not hard to recognize. And anybody listening is probably going to go, eh, I can think of a few people that are always dishing in hate, right? And whether it's, you know, I, any end of any ideological spectrum or just a general behavior in, in their attitudes where it comes to, you know, carnivore versus vegan, you know, there's, there's hateful attitudes in that as well. It's not just politics. But if you notice people constantly peddling that stuff, why the fuck are you following them? If it gives you a nasty emotional reaction every time, if it irritates you, why the hell are you following them? Or if it's an obligation to follow, mute them. You can mute people on every platform. Just get rid of that bullshit. And I will just mercilessly purge that stuff so that way it doesn't, you know, distract me during my day. And it clears up space for the people that I care about, that I like. I want to see how they're doing. The things that inspire me, the the people I gain valuable information from and relationships that I, I care about, a lot about. Because you could only see one thing at a time in a story or a newsfeed. Clearing out the garbage and the hate and the intolerance and the crap only leaves room for the things that you curate that are better. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I've done that more and more this year. I mean, I've had to block a few people. They take things out of context and start arguing with me. And I'm like, well this is like my, my time off. This is my me time. I don't need to argue with somebody on my phone. That isn't my client or my friend. Like these are strangers on the internet. Um, and like, I've, I've definitely taken a lot of 
the advice that uh, Jordan Syatt lays out and it's just like he he takes no hesitation to block or anything like that because like some of the uh, some of the things that people can receive on social media are just ridiculous and I can only imagine as your following grows it'll get worse and worse. Absolutely. Uh, a couple thoughts here. One is you under are under no obligation to tolerate the the aggression of someone who has trolling or disingenuous intentions, right? If it's a thoughtful disagreement, an intellectual disagreement over something, I actually hope you handle those with care and you have a great opportunity to bridge the gap or, you know, turn a critic into a, you know, a loyal follower. You know, that's a good way to look at it. But yeah, Jordan Syed's one person who, due to the size of his following, he gets a lot of really weird stuff. If you if you share a lot of nutrition information, you're going to Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, tons of stuff. And you should be fairly aggressive with blocking people who are clearly in there to be trolls. You don't have to tolerate it. If somebody in occasion I've dealt with online harassment before, you know, I can think of at least one individual who has gone out of their way to harass and send other people to harass. And I've blocked mercilessly and I've been, quote, accused of silencing that person, which is complete nonsense because, you know, you you're you have no right to behave that way on my feed and my media when your intentions are disingenuous. And we don't have to subject ourselves to the emotional harm of listening to bullies and trolls and, and people with malevolent, malicious intent. Well, it's it's so true. Go ahead. You're going to say something else. Um, and this one comes straight from Nick Tuminello. So, you know, if anybody is in, you know, certainly the fitness industry or anything where you're, you know, you're kind of, a, you're a business brand identity. If you train the trolls and people that if they are antagonistic or argumentative, that that's what gets your attention. And then you will share information to try to educate them or spar with them or what have you. Well, that that's how you, you train people to behave in that manner and you just attract more of it. So Nick doesn't participate in that sort of stuff. Instead, he will, you know, if it's someone he knows, he'll have a private conversation to discuss it because he doesn't want to demonstrate that he's giving more time and value to random strangers than to his own clients who are paying him very good money. So it's a good way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really good point. And like to the whole like talking it out with people when it's a valuable conversation, like there's been a lot of times when like maybe how I said something in a post really just wasn't going to land very well. And a person just pointed that out to me and I was like, Oh yeah, like I wouldn't have thought about it that way. And I've course corrected and it's kind of like being open to feedback from clients, being open to feedback from anybody that we interact with. It can only help you grow. Um, with regards to, we kind of brought up Jordan Syatt and I know that you start off doing some, uh, Twitter posts and it sort of became something much larger. And I remember like when you first started doing those, like you'd be, cause since we're at the same facility, sometimes we see each other's routine and you go through your workout and then you sit down, you do your Twitter post and you're telling me that it was a really simple routine for you. Um, what was the origin for the Twitter posts? And like, when was it that you saw them start to take off the way that they have? I can't speak to the exact origin. I know that there's a handful of people in the industry, Jordan being one of them. There's a few others who were doing it at the time when I, you know, I started doing these things with consistency. Oh, God, January of 2020, when I had about 3,000 Instagram followers. 
And so I just committed to doing it every day. And there was you know, very gradual growth, very gradual growth. And then a major inflection point was actually Syed himself taking one of my posts and sharing it into his story. Now, Jordan at the time would have had over 600,000 followers. And so that caused a 400 new follower surge within a 24 hour span. And then it just seemed like it picked up from there. And then as I got above 5,000 followers, Mike Isertel <laughs> several times took one of my posts and actually shared it to his wall and tagged me, not just his story, which drove again, surges upon surges of people each time he did it. And then it just built up over time. I just stayed consistent. And it's a product of taking note of the conversations you're having each day with clients or your thoughts or random things that pop at your mind and making sure you make a note of it before you forget it. Sitting down, writing it and editing it in such a way that it maximizes. Twitter is a great system for this because you have a character limit. Therefore, it forces you to be concise in what you say. And over time, along with studying writing, it just got a little better and a little better and more shares and more shares and more shares. And it continued to drive following. It's also not that simple. A lot of the stuff that helped drive the following, because as of today, it's about 17,700 and, and growing rapidly. The fact that I write for a number of well-known major fitness publications, starting with T Nation a few years back. Um, the fact that I, through my travels in the podcast, have become friends with a lot of people like Mike Isertel, like Jordan Syed, and some of the other people who share my stuff. And those those network effects. Uh, Jonathan Goodman's been a major supporter. I write for you know the PTDC, his uh, company. And when people come in and see a post that was shared in a friend's story, and they come to your profile and they look, they're they're making a decision. Okay, you know I like this idea. What else is here to validate my choice to follow this person? And when they see these publications or some of the other things in my in my brand and my media podcast, whatever it validates the choice. So as you accumulate these things, I call them a piece of career capital. And it could be anything from owning a physical facility to having a successful podcast or, or successful YouTube channel or writing for these publications or have, being a business mentor, a reputable one, because there's a lot of scuzzy ones in everybody's DMs. And I'll, I'll use someone like Luca Hosevar, for example, any fitness professional who isn't following Luca, go follow him. He's high energy, he's inspirational. Uh, Luca owns a physical facility, two podcasts, has a business mentorship, is friends with a lot of really powerful people in the industry. He writes for some major publications. I actually brought him onto T Nation by bringing him into a collaboration over an idea that we were both kind of separately playing with on social media. And I thought, hey, let's get you on here. Let's do something together. Cool opportunity to you know connect further. And so you look at a guy like that and see what he's doing and you go, okay, this is someone that I can definitely get behind and follow. And then you you see all this inspirational shit that he puts up, you know, he's high energy. Um, so it just was something that I committed to consistently. And I guess John Russell, who's another industry friend, he recently put up a Facebook post, basically shitting all over the Twitter posts, calling them lazy, you know, posting uh, a Twitter caption to Instagram. And John cleared up some nuance to exactly what he meant, but, and he always likes stirring up controversy and getting comments going. And of course, a lot of people got in there and were arguing with him. But nothing quite shares anywhere close to this format because it's a familiar format that people recognize and understand is something they can share. It is a preferred way of sharing and consuming short pieces of information. 
they get shared vastly beyond any other format. Even people who are trying to create custom graphics to replicate the concept of Twitter by doing something different, those things don't get shared anywhere near as readily as the Twitter ones themselves because it's a recognized and therefore in people's minds approved thing. I recognize this, I can share it. It's okay to share this with people, right? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And our brains work in funny ways. I mean, I know with my own stuff, sometimes I purposefully just cater to a smaller audience. I'm like, I don't need everybody to be my client. I just want to kind of speak to my small crowd. And that's all I need for today. But I can totally see like the the everything that makes it work the way it does make sense. Because there are the controls of the characters like less is more um there's the uh the ability to kind of like test it on one platform and then bring it to the other like that's something that i really like about actually using the physical uh twitter account because heck if it gets some traction it might actually uh take off on instagram although sometimes that can backfire and just endless endless little uh takeaways within that but something that i pay a lot of attention to is you put in endless hours to honing your writing like you're reading books on writing. What have been the biggest things that uh, that you've learned or that you would want to share with others who are wanting to improve on their writing? Oh, there's probably a lot there. Um, I mean, first of all, I'll throw a couple books out there. Read On Writing Well by Zinzer. That's one of the best places to start. Or you could do Everybody Writes by Anne Handley. That's fantastic. Uh, I'm currently doing a book called Write Tight, and that's one of the best writing books I've ever gone through. By the way, if you're going to do, I do a lot of audiobooks. You need to physically read a book on radio. You can't do them on audio. It's not the same. So I think it's good to have an ongoing book on writing at any given time to keep this stuff forefront in your mind. Keep it top of mind so that you, it's, you're always thinking about your craft. You're always being reminded. A lot of these books will talk about a few concepts. And I think the two most important things are understanding well, okay, editing. You, you need to develop skill as an editor, right? But you need to start with just simply getting to the work. There are a lot of obstacles. A lot of writers think that when you look at great writers, and we're talking about legendary authors like Ernest Hemingway or Faulkner or you know whoever else fits your, um, your, your idea of a great writer, Tolstoy, that these people first draft right the way that the finished product comes out. That's not how it works at all. Anybody in our industry who you know is in fitness writing will tell you that they have multiple drafts, they revise, they do a lot of editing. And if anything, if you try to sit down and write perfectly the first go, it will hamstring you and you will struggle with it and you won't get anything done. It's better to write stream of conscience, consciousness and get your ideas down. I think creating a framework of what you want to say is a good place to start, but binge the writing without aggressively trying to edit it for grammar, style, or any other aspects of it, wordiness, and then come back around to it and then go through the process of mercilessly editing it. And then the book I mentioned, Write Tight, is the best I've seen on recognizing clumsy writing, you know, excessive words, unnecessary language, weak language, passive language. And I think there's probably going to be a difference in terms of someone's natural instinct towards writing. But the biggest thing that's going to shape whether or not you're going to become a good writer is whether you actually study the craft. It's like anything else. It's like, you know, the fitness side of, you know, the technical side of our industry or understanding the in-depth science of 
of nutrition or the psychology of habits, it's not always an instinctive or automatic thing. We can gain a lot of experience by doing it, but it's always valuable to study it. So if you are really serious about writing, I mean, the best thing I'll tell you right now is just shoot me a message on Instagram if you are really interested in writing, and I will try to point you in some of the right directions uh, on top of the books that I just mentioned. Absolutely. And I mean, it goes with any kind of uh, vehicle within this profession. I mean, with podcasts, like anybody that uh, pays attention to the growth of, of my podcast, I've spent countless hours like learning how to do a lot of the technical side of this stuff. Like it started out, it took me three hours to edit an audio podcast. If it had lots of issues in it, then I upgraded the equipment. Now it takes, I can probably publish video and audio on all platforms in 30 minutes with nameplates and everything. So it's like, if you're, if you want to improve on something, you have to have like kind of some skin in the game. You have to be learning from other people. I mean, anybody who follows me on social media, I listen to more podcasts than I put out. And that's ridiculous. <laughs> like for anybody that's going to be following along this week, there's going to be a lot of podcasts coming out. But uh, just kind of goes to reiterate how important it is to not just uh, like back to the whole obstacle is the way instead of complaining about what we don't have. Just look at improving what we could have or improving on a skill or finding direction to sharpen, sharpen the needle. Um, when it comes to you kind of working on yourself, like, you got your list of books that you go through. You have the conferences that you choose. You have the people that you choose for your podcast. Like, what is your compass? Like, what directs the, your decisions or what inspires you in this industry? I don't know if there's a clear compass a lot of the time. Um, and it makes me think about something that Dean Somerset wrote quite some time ago. And if you, anyone's intimately familiar with Dean's career, he's accomplished an enormous amount and he's a very recognized and reputable person. And at various junctures through all the things that he's done through his creating info products or you know, public speaking or any other thing that he's done, he's basically said he didn't know what he was doing. I think I'm at the point now where I continue to do things. I see the value in the podcast in terms of as a connection networking vehicle, plus an opportunity to spend time with people I really like in the industry. And I have a certain set of criteria that I kind of have for anybody I'm going to ask on the podcast. Um, gather my train of thought here. It's, it's one piece of a bigger puzzle. It used to be, you know, under a different name and me and Dean, it was sort of like the separate entity and it was great. But now it's more of a deliberate piece of my brand. There's definitely more cohesion in all my brand work. The writing is something I see a great deal of, deal of value in. I think a lot of it is just about increasing brand and reach in the industry because I look up to a lot of people that I followed for a really long time and I value the idea of being in a similar place in the industry. So I'm trying to do a bunch of things that work toward it. Fundamentally, the most important thing is my business in front of me, my clientele serving them, making sure they're taken care of. All the other stuff is bonus. But the fact that my business has been so strong for as long as it has, has allowed me the luxury of traveling to conferences where I've been able to meet people or to set the time aside to do a weekly podcast or to have the time to write because the amount of time it takes to write one of these articles waters down the rate of pay to the point where it doesn't even come close to what I get paid for an hourly training session. 
but some of the benefits of writing for some of these publications you can't measure in dollars. So I think it's I think it's worthy to aspire to. Um, and not everybody has to do all the same things that you or I do. They don't have to be podcasters. It feels like there's more podcasts than ever, and it is hard to keep up with them all. I'm very, very picky about the podcasts I listen to now because I just can't keep up with them. Um, again, I'm running a little far afield here. So I don't really think I have a direct path. I certainly haven't sat down and said, this is what I want to accomplish by this point. But I did make some goals this year of some individual things that I wanted to achieve. And, and some of those things, like writing for two new major publications, that's already happened. I've got a third in the works that just is on hold as the company does some restructuring. And then I'll pursue some new avenues there. So as the writing grows, the brand grows. You know, as I continue with the podcast, again, those relationships grow. I'm now getting, I'm having my website redeveloped. I want a very high-end professional looking website that belongs in the place I'm in in the industry. So I'm excited about unveiling that. I've gotten a, a good friend of mine, uh, Tara Arndt, who is based out of Spokane, Washington. Uh, she does email marketing. So she helped me set up my email uh, marketing account. And I'm not selling anything at this point. You know, I don't have programs or whatever to sell. I just, I want a vehicle to collect an email list and connect with people outside of social media. God forbid social media, Instagram becomes irrelevant and all of a sudden I've lost connection or you get your account hacked or banned or any other sort of stuff that could happen. Michael Dietrich lost his account for a little while there and was very lucky to get it back. You know, his big following, it can be a stressful thing. So, you know, I, I think it's common wisdom to tell fitness professionals, you know, hey, build an email list. Well, I don't know if I would really do a whole lot with it yet, but I think it's probably better to have it when you need it and, and put the work in than to need it and not have it. So maybe I'm just following in the footsteps of the people that came before me in the industry. But funny enough, I'm not sure that all those things are the way to go for the younger fitness professional where social media is king now. I think social media is really powerful. And it's one of the reasons why I've invested the, the effort into it. But I think all the other things I've done have, val like I said earlier, validated a brand so that way it made it easy to attract following. I think this youngest generation are probably going to be more and more rooted and centered in social media versus some of these other traditional things. I still think it's a really good idea to have a website, a professional website. I don't think it's a terrible idea at all to have some sort of long form career capital outside of social media posting. Imagine that's all you're doing, you're posting on social media and someone finds one of your posts and thinks, hey, this is great. What else does this person have? And there's no website, there's no writing articles, there's no podcast, there's no YouTube, there's no anything else, there's just social media. I think you can really make social media work for you, but I think it's still worthwhile developing something a little bit more substantial than just the quick hits that are really not searchable on social media versus, you know, an article that is about, you know, some aspect of fat loss or nutrition or strength training that is evergreen that someone can always reference back to and search for. Absolutely. I mean, like when it comes to the website and just having other things to find outside of social media, like search engine optimization is key. Like being able to, for either of us to be able to search our name and then the word fitness and then be able to see like a multitude of sources is going to be very helpful for us when people are, if they can search Edmonton trainer and find us or any of our friends, like that's a great thing to have. And having articles and having content out there and having it linked in and having the podcast notes and all these different things 
is going to contribute to that. Like that's something that I started doing. I had uh, Carter Good on my podcast on episode 100. So I chose that because I figured people are going to Google his name quite a bit. And I wrote out the entire script from the episode and people just started Googling it. And it's something that I had already created that people started searching for and it was incredibly valuable. So if, if any of our uh, other podcast hosts are listening, that's something that I'd highly recommend for sure. And I've been following uh, Tara Arnett for a while because you've given her shout outs countless times. I'm like, oh, I better check this out. I don't want to uh, miss out on the value. And it's just like, that's all it takes. People don't necessarily have to invest in every little thing, but to have people on their radar, people who are kind of like leading the charge in a respective area or task, whether it be email lists or um, just video editing or whatever it may be, that can be very, very helpful. Um, with regards to your website, what are the things that you're looking forward to most about having it updated? Like I, I saw the about me and all that stuff and I was like, this is like three to four years old. Like, is he got something new coming? So with the update, what's going to be? And I've been neglectful of my website. It was something I was really grateful to have a good, one of my closest friends made it for me um, who doesn't do them professionally. It was still a really good job. And it was something I needed to get a, for, a place to write, which led to other published writing opportunities. And I think those took over. So I wasn't writing for my own website as frequently. And it is really challenging to keep up with everything that you do, a full coaching schedule, right? I'm like, it's been 35 to 50 client hours a week for a very long time, right? On top of that, you know, there's a weekly podcast, which takes time to record and do all the other stuff around it, you know, booking, scheduling, getting guests on, and then all the whatever. I don't do a lot of production stuff. I think you take that a lot more seriously than I do. But uh, uploading it, make sure there's a graphic, et cetera, sharing it on the, on the, the platforms. You got to do that. Uh, writing articles, you know, the social media stuff. All this time adds up. And I'm not super tech savvy. Guido set me up with how to do a lot of simple stuff with a podcast. And I just roll with that. I don't do a lot of complex things. So when it comes to website maintenance, especially, it was just something that I think fell by the wayside. And it's okay to fall by the wayside on certain things. It's also one of the reasons why I said, you know, I need to get this new website developed. And in knowing I was going to do it, then I just didn't bother to turn around and tinker with the old one. And then once the new one's up and the old one's down, it probably doesn't matter so much anymore. I still try to do a little bit with a website, but I'm kind of holding off until I'm ready to unveil the new one. And then once you have the new one, you can almost take pride in it a little bit more and you're going to be a little more conscientious of using it. So I think if anybody is listening who's in our industry and doesn't have a website, get a website, right? At least something basic. And then if you're really good with this sort of stuff, well, shit, try to squeeze the most out of it you can. Absolutely. I mean, what it comes down to is like something that I've just kind of stumbled into is I've done some subcontracting for other people. Like I've, I've helped them with some of their media and stuff like that because it, that was just something that I came into the industry already strong at. And then I honed my skills as a trainer. And so for people like it could be in any category at any level, like if you're a brand new trainer and you've got a friend in the industry and the friend is good at one aspect and you're good at the other aspect, lean on each other, support each other. Um, nobody can kind of get through this industry by themselves. It's very similar to uh, like when, in 2019, I wouldn't have made the risk or put myself out there to go to the, the Kansas City Fitness Summit if you hadn't given me the nudge. 
Like I basically scraped together all my pennies to go because, well, I mean, I knew that it would pay off. I believed what you were saying about the value of it and having done it all, like I have zero regrets. Like, I mean, it introduced me to some of my close friends now, like Alex McBarity and I talk together all the time. I contract for him. So it's part of my employment. So it's like, um, just, I, I can't emphasize enough how valuable it is for people as the world opens up to be going to these conferences and to be connecting with people because it's one thing to make internet friends, which I, that's a strength for me, but it's another thing to actually have like in-person connection and to be able to like share a meal with people and, uh, have some jokes and talk about things that aren't necessarily fitness to build a rapport with these other human beings that are doing this stuff because that's where you get other people with other skills that can help you in your career. I've seen what that trip did for you in terms of your career. And, you know, you met a lot of people, made a lot of connections there. You've had a lot of podcasts, guests of out of noteworthy fitness professionals just from meeting them at that event. So I'm glad it turned out good for you. I wouldn't have even, I don't endorse things I don't believe in. I don't endorse people I don't believe in. But I very strongly believe in sharing other people on my media. I do it relentlessly, whether it's the podcast or through sharing other people's work through social media and who knows what future opportunities. Obviously, um, I haven't made a final decision yet and it's not just my decision about whether or not we can pull off uh, the Evolved Canadian Strength Symposium this year. Given the fact that our city council still is going to probably have some restrictions in place despite the provincial government keeping things open and the timeline, it may be just too difficult this year. So we shall see. Next year, Dean and John and I will probably, you know, we'll get together for sure and we'll reboot it. I, I, I know next year will happen. But yeah, bringing in great speakers, people who are recognizing an issue like Lee Voice, like Megan Calloway, obviously Dean Somerset's a part of the project. Uh, you know, the, the last year before we ultimately had to cancel it, we had Christian Thibodeau coming in from Quebec, I had Brian Cron, had Jonathan Goodman, and uh, we were gonna bring Jordan Syed up. And right? so we had a really cool, Sam Spinelli coming in from Kelowna. A lot of really cool people. Our friend Hannah Gray here locally, in addition to Lee uh, Boyce and Megan Calloway. And would have been a great event, but couldn't do it. Okay, cool. We'll we'll come back around to that. And instead of saying, no, I want one of those speaking times for myself, it's like, I'll, I'll MC the damn thing. I'll work at putting it together. But let's put all these other cool people up on the stage instead. Absolutely. I mean, that's going to be a big event when it comes time. It's something that I kind of drop hints to people about. Like, it's worth traveling to Edmonton for it. You don't have to just be in Edmonton. You could come from the States to travel to this thing because it was like, it was a very, very noteworthy list of people last time. And just as it grows, as your career grows, as the careers of the presenters grow, and people like, in seeing the organizing of the conferences in the States and how excited people are to be around each other, like Jeb Stewart Johnson, for one, is one that I've seen pop up on social media and how excited he is to be around human beings and like like-minded people. Um, and I imagine everybody shares that. Well, I'll get to see Jeb. He's presenting at uh, Tara Arndt's husband Tim's event, the Inland Empire Fitness Conference. And that's in the very beginning of August in Spokane. I'm going to drive down to it now that I know that we can you know, come back and forth without too much hassle. And Jeb's presenting... Um, I know that Greg Knuckles just had to pull out and Chad Landers can't make it, but Brad Dieter, James Krieger are both going to be speakers at it. 
and a number of other industry friends of mine. There'll be, I have a feeling it'll be on the smaller side, maybe 50 or so people, but there's a hunger and a desire to get back out to these things. I think that one's going to do well. I plan to fly down to Seattle in September, late September for Luca Hosovar's fitness and business conference, very different kind of event. And I went to that in 2017 and that was a really pivotal experience. I got to meet a lot of really cool people in the industry. I got to sit down and have dinner with Martin Rooney. You know, and that's how I've had Martin on the podcast a couple of times. Martin's a pretty legendary figure in the industry. I met Sam Pogue and just the, I, I don't want to go through the entire list because a lot of people I met down there and a lot of those people I stay in contact with, a lot of podcast guests. And it was an awesome experience. Luca knows how to throw a good party. So I'm looking forward to the next one. And I think, like you said, there's a lot of value in keeping your eyes on these things. As for people coming to see our event here, We've got to earn that. We've got to do a great job of throwing a great party, but also having a great lineup and making it something that people want to travel to. We have to earn that every step of the way. It's like it's an Instagram follow or a someone reading an article or listening to a podcast. We are constantly earning those views. We're not entitled to them. And people have to get this idea out of their heads that you're somehow entitled to what someone else has worked very, very hard to develop in their career. Uh, jealousy and envy are insidious things that if you find yourself feeling that way, you should do two things. One is try to rewire that kind of behavior. It goes back to your reference to the obstacles, the way it's sort of this victim mentality instead of taking complete ownership of your circumstance, your attitude, and then ask yourself, what can I do to change this for the better? Go out and achieve it yourself. And if you also feel a lot of envy towards certain people or, or you know, certain people elicit negative feelings, well, why are you following them, <laughs> right? Like, you got to check your attitude and deal with that first. But maybe you're also exposing yourself to the wrong stimuli and saying, let's just remove this, this trigger for me and focus on things that make you feel better. Absolutely. I mean, it's so true. There, There's probably countless times where somebody thinks that somebody else has everything just going for them and they don't realize that like, whether it be you or I consuming lots of content, whether it be books or podcasts and like, what are we doing with our downtime? Well, that is our downtime sometimes. And it's just like, people need to get used to the fact that like, if you want to be at that next level or gain that experience, you either have to put in the experience or put in the work. Like for me to look at your career, I know that you've got several years on me. So it's like, okay, what can I do that will improve day after day? And then I can reflect on myself like six years from now and see how far I've come rather than like I would never be able to compare my podcast directly to yours because we're two different human beings in front of a microphone. The only thing in common is the microphone. And then the, the differences are what you would say was our career capital and our life experiences and those like authentic connections we've made the client referrals the people that we've met in person like those things actually carry a lot more weight than just social media and production quality etc 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 i'm a lot older than you <laughs> there's a little more life experience there so if anyone who is newer to the industry looks at something that i'm doing i try to leave a lot of clues as to what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, or what you can get out of it. I, I don't keep a lot of secrets about it. If you have specific questions, ask. If you can learn and do some of these things and chart a quicker path to some of the things that I've accomplished, uh, and I'm not talking about bullshit shortcuts here. I'm just on the doorstep of 20,000 
coaching hours on the floor in, in a gym, you can't, you know, fast forward through that sort of thing. You know, I, I think accumulating experience in all these realms is still the most important thing you can do, but you can probably get to a lot of the other things a lot quicker, um, be it the podcast, be it, you know, do a really killer job on YouTube or something that I may start to tiptoe into dabbling with, let alone committing to, or if it's writing on these major publications, I mean, you know, we mentioned Lee Boyce, Lee Boyce, if I'm not like Lee is only in his early thirties and he's been a recognized writer and, and powerful influence in the fitness industry for a decade. If I'm not mistaken, he was writing for Teen Nation in his earliest of his twenties. And there are other examples of people who did that. My first Teen Nation article happened when I was over the age of 40. So imagine where some of you guys can be if you take go back to choosing your attitude and your actions in the face of otherwise things beyond your control and work hard at it. For sure. And one of my favorite things to do, and I've done this with a few different fitness professionals, I'll just dig back to their earliest article or their earliest video. Something really fun that I did was I went and looked at Jordan Syed's earlier videos and just saw the contrast. Um, I'll look at Dean Somerset's earlier articles and just see how he described things then versus how he described them now. And in his presentations, he'll like, he'll outline it. He'll be like how his, uh, his style has changed. The way that he trains his clients changes because it should change. And so anyone that happens to have popped onto the show and been listening this far, if you ever feel frustrated, just go dig up the original content of somebody that's on your radar and just see, see what their earlier days were like and get to know that person more in the sense that like you entered the industry in like your thirties or something. I, I think I entered the industry when I was like uh, 25. So it's, you have a great head start on me. It's just that, I mean, I'm further along because I'm a lot older. So you old man, <laughs> right? Um, if you want the ultimate example of going back and seeing someone's early stuff, I mean, I just went through the book, crush it, crushing it again, the, the, the updated one by Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary is one of the smarter and more interesting and influential people in, in media space. And he talks about himself and his old wine library videos and Jordan Syatt, same thing, Jordan trained Gary, right? So there's some lessons pulled out of that. I can tell a noticeable difference between how, fluid and in control you are of this episode as a host here versus back in episode 58 or whatever you said it was right so i've noticed that just even in talking to you so i'll have to leave off there i've got a client coming in the door in a couple of minutes so absolutely i mean it's it's been great to have you back on the show and uh like i say anybody that hasn't go check out the older episode but thanks for coming on the show again my pleasure. Thanks for wanting to have me back. And thanks to whoever requested me to come back.